Hey, hello again, everybody. John Porteous of the Lovells Township Historical Society here, and you're listening to the Backcast Podcast. Hey, welcome back. Uh, episode two, Glenn Everly and I are going to speak with Jerry Lake this week. Jerry is a uh, longtime resident of the North Branch and has a significant history relative to uh, its care and feeding. Uh, he has a great deal of passion. Uh, that'll clearly come through in our conversation. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. Here we go. Great to have you on board here for the interview of the podcast. And uh, we, we'd like to start by asking you, uh, how did you get involved in the, in the North Branch? What brought you here, first of all? Well, uh, my my grandma, Gertipi, and grandpa, uh, uh, back in the 1940, bought property here, 39 acres, and uh, they from the bar up on the east side of the river. And uh, my grandpa was a fly fisherman and a hunter. He was half Indian, I don't know what tribe. And uh, then, yeah, he used to hunt with Paul Leffler that built the tavern and uh, them people. So my and my history, my heritage goes right back to the beginning. So your grandparents lived in the area and had, to, had yeah. 39 acres on the North Branch. Yeah, and then Grandpa died in 53, and uh, she married Fred Herrick in 54. So then he had a place at Twin Bridges, and she moved over to his place, and then eventually she sold the place uh, on the other side of the river. All right, now these were your grandparents. Yeah. You were living in Flint at the time. Yeah. And uh, your parents would bring you up on weekends. Uh, and leave me, they would leave me. I'd spend a week or two weeks with Grandma and Grandpa. Ah. See. Excellent. So early early on, what age was this? We, we were just uh, in diapers? Well, no, it, I, it was in 1954. Uh, so I'm thinking... Probably around the fourth grade, I think, fourth or fifth grade. Uh, so the perfect time for a young man to get acquainted with the river. Well, yeah, and I was already started trapping it down at Flint then, too. I'd get up in, early in the morning uh, in 1954 before school with a flashlight and go out and check traps, then come home and take a shower and go to school and then I would and when I got out of school then I'd go run the track line again. And, and what were you targeting? Muskrats. There you go. And raccoons I think you said? No, not not then. Okay. N not at that age. <clears throat> I, I think there's a story about you when you were a little kid up here with your grandparents would uh, leave or I, I think your grandparents uh, let, let some people camp on the property? Yeah, yeah, there was uh, two school teachers that uh, from Ohio, Les and Judy Burdick, and uh, they were yearly guests there. They let them camp there all summer long. And uh, they, uh, they were fly fishermen, but the, the big thing was that I used to like to go down, I was only in diapers when I started, I'd walk down there and take off and walk down the two track and go down there because she always had fresh baked oatmeal raisin cookies. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the recipe, as I later found out, went back into the 1800s. <laughs> and uh, that recipe today is still great. And uh, so I was always going down there for cookies. And uh, then I, uh, somewhere probably in 56, 57, uh, my mother was too bashful to ask for the recipe, but I spoke up and asked Judy if she would give her the, my mom the recipe. And she did. <laughs> and uh, we tried, and I le tried to learn how to bake cookies, but they never were, uh, they never came out the same. <laughs> Judy's cookies were always real moist and they stayed fresh and moist for a couple of weeks. And uh, so then uh, after a couple of years of trying to bake them like that, we, we were unsuccessful. So then the next time I seen her, I said, well, why is yours always moist and ours aren't? Well, the one key was that you had to boil the raisins in water 
before you add them into the mixture. And that's oh. all you had, that was the only thing, but she didn't have that in the recipe. I'll be damned. And, uh, Boiling raisins. Yeah, you just boil the raisins in water before you add them. So they wouldn't suck the moisture out of the cookie, I guess. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, and, uh, the, they'll stay good and soft for about two weeks. They don't even have to be covered. Oh, nice. Yeah. And, maybe uh, maybe you'll share that recipe with us. I'll get Martha to yeah. do a batch. Yeah, I got to do that with Terry's wife, too. Okay. Jerry, let's go to fly fishing. Now, uh, was your father a fly fisherman? No, you said no. your grandpa was, but your, your No, father he was? wasn't. He was the world's worst fisherman <laughs> <laughs> on anything. But he, he had a fly rod, didn't he? He had a fly rod, a bamboo fly rod, cheap one, but he never used it, and I took it over. And you used it? Yeah. And did you Six fish? weight. It was six weight line. Were you practicing it? That's, uh, I practiced out uh, prior to, um, in the spring of uh, 54, before we came up that summer. I practiced in the yard, like probably April or May. Had a bread pan out there and I put water in it so that, in a split shot on the end of the line, so when it hit the water, you knew you hit the target. You ah. see the water splash. Okay. See. So and that was on the lawn. You weren't on the river. No, on the lawn. Okay. Just just learning how to cast without getting wind knots and accuracy. Nobody helped you with casting. You just did it on no, the lawn. No, no, I had to learn on my own. Ah, okay. And, did you uh, fish with your grandfather, who was a good fisherman? Well, no, he was not a trout. The the sec the, the step grandfather. Eric was not a fly fisherman or not a trout fisherman. Oh, okay, just dart if he was. Right. But he took me fishing at Crapel. Crapel at that time was a great walleye producer. And they not only had natural reproduction, but they also had, they would stock every year. Okay. And uh, they ran a boat launch, and uh, that place was always maxed out. It was such a producer on walleyes. In hmm. fact, my uh, step-grandpa's... Uh, 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 son-in-law was a barber in Howell and uh, we started fishing with what was called a June bug spinner but uh, that shortly changed because a guy down in Howell invented the uh, nightcrawler harness oh. and that was the first time. Most of the fishing lures that, that in, the, in the United States were came out of Michigan. Michigan was just awesome for there's a lot of companies making them. Yeah, big. everything came mm -hmm. out of Michigan. And uh, so uh, he gave them to the, my step-uncle to try out, and they were highly effective. And you couldn't keep the walleyes off the line. And right. we would have like 10, 15 boats trying to cut us off and fish right beside us. And we were catching walleyes, and they couldn't do it. It just drove people crazy. Now, did they rent boats on that place? They rented boats, and then you could launch a boat. You paid a launch. They actually, I got to tell you, I didn't catch that many. They took me along so that they could catch more than their limit. Oh, for another? <laughs> yeah, because your limit was five, and I, at best, I would only catch one. Yeah, but you could. They could fill your limit. That's right. That's All why right. I got to go <laughs> at such a young age. <laughs> All right. So now, okay. Um, what about the fly fishing? You you did that on your tell us about fly fishing. The first on, year on that I the, yeah the first year I fished, I never caught the the size limit had to be nine inches, and uh, I it took me all year to it was the last day that I fished in the fall, and I finally got a nine incher. That finally got a legal fish. Legal fish. Mm -hmm. Ah, ah. Well, all right. I I'd like to I'd like to shift gears, John, and and uh, this guy is so well known uh, up here for his uh, devotion to conservation and preservation and restoration of the river. Uh, I'd like to have Jerry tell us a story about how he first got involved with conservation. I love this story. So oh, that's a great one. Yeah, Jerry, would you yeah, share yeah. this? Yeah, yeah. John's uh, aware of it. He he knows. We're talking about the rafts. Yes. Yeah. Well, I, I would fish early in the morning. I would get up uh, 6, 7, 8 o'clock in the morning and, and uh, go out and fish, fly fish. 
And then during the middle of the day, we didn't fish. And uh, so I would amuse myself. I, uh, at that time, Davy Crockett was really the inspiration. That movie from Walt Disney came out at that time. <laughs> and that fit right in with me. So. And you were what about uh, in fit was fifty four? Fifty four. Yeah. And you were eight years old. Yeah. Okay. And eight uh, year old little boy. And right? I weighed maybe maybe sixty pounds. I'm not <laughs> sure. Would you have seen that at the Rialto in Grayling or back home in Flint? No, this is in Flint. Okay. <laughs> and uh, well, actually, it was on TV too, Walt Disney. And uh, so um, in the in the daytime there. I went out into the neighbor's field. You had a farm? Yep, it was the old Feldhauser farm. Feldhauser farm, okay. Yeah, and they uh, they still had a few of the old cedar fence posts. They were quite light, they weren't real big. And uh, I would, I dragged a few of them back, three or four back to make a raft. And uh, then I would nail them together, put a rope on it, and then I, uh, put them in the water, of course it was upstream of the bridge there, and I could stand on them, and I would hold the rope up, stand up, and I would stand on that raft. And I can still remember this, it was standing on the raft going down the river. And I fantasized that I was Davy Crockett. <laughs> and, re, you know. An explorer. Yeah. And, uh, I wasn't allowed to go past the bend when you stand on the bridge. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so... Until your grandmother said no, you couldn't go past the bend? Right. So they had to be able to stand on the bridge and look up or down the river and be able to see me. Gotcha. And uh, I was going to tow the raft back upstream and do it again. But I wasn't strong enough. That raft was coming against the current. I couldn't pull it, so I let it go. And uh, then next day or a couple of days later, whatever, I uh, wanted to do it again. So I went out and I built another. But I the total amount that I built was five. I know that. <laughs> and uh, I let them go. And uh, it wasn't later on that fall or something. I got wind that it was. The guys were talking about all the fish that were in these rafts and who built them. Nobody knew who built them. They were always wanting to know who built the rafts. Well, <laughs> it seemed like every time I did something, I was catching hell. <laughs> and I never wanted to tell them fishermen that I built the raft because I wasn't sure if it was good or bad or if I'd get in trouble. Didn't know because I always got in trouble. Sure. <laughs> and uh, so I kept quiet. But the next year, I was. they let me go further down and I fished over and I could you in the middle of the day you could see those browns. They dart in and out of the rafts and everything, see. So <laughs> So your first experience with conservation was a pure accident. Well it was an unattended consequence. Yeah, but a good one because yeah. the fish structure that you let go yeah. drifted down river and would, would lock up someplace and provide cover for trout. Now an important thing about the fishermen and the residents at that particular time in life, when those guys went fishing in the daytime, uh, they always carried wire and pliers and wire cutters in their creels or in their vest. And they would go through and they would examine all of the CCC structures that were wing deflectors okay. in the river. Most of those were all upstream of 612. And, and we got uh, a double wing up by us. Yeah, and they would they would uh, they would use that wire and stuff. They and uh, they would repair them, oh. keep maintain it, routine maintenance. Okay. So you had you had some conscientious fishermen. Every time they went, they were examining the structures, and then they were if there's any repairs or anything, or if there was a loose log somewhere, they would tie it in. So it was routine maintenance that they did. And uh, so I was conscious of that, see, in watching them. So that was kind of a beginning. But the other thing, the more you start fishing, the more you start to understand as to what the fish like, 
where they feed and what, what they demand for habitat, that's how you catch fish. So it's a learning process. Well, you, you start to learn right away the value of those structures. So <laughs> That's good to know. I, I didn't realize that the fishermen back then were even thinking about conservation. So they were trying to help the stream by patching up those structures yeah, because functional. Because from, from uh, the, the fishing in, in all of Michigan, which I learned this at the museum, somebody put this in, a, from 1925 to 1930, they closed trout fishing in all the streams of Michigan. The sand had taken over and they, were, uh, they, they closed it because they had to start natural reproduction as opposed to depending on planting fish. So uh, they didn't have nobody enforce the law. So then your, your CCCs came in and built those structures. And it all started here on the North Branch in Lovells. This was the first, Lovells was the first place that stream improvement started in all of the United States. Wow. And that's documented by the DNR. Oh, now there's yeah. other states that have tried to claim that, but they can't do it. The dates aren't there. Interesting. Well, I mean, there, there's obviously a legacy of conservation on, on the north. I go back to Mershon. Sure. <laughs> Pretty radical for his day and some yeah. of his thoughts. So, Interestingly, Mershon said about this time that what the north branch needed was a good log drive because the sand had filtered. And we have that in a letter that Mershon wrote to <laughs> exactly. uh, the conservation Commission, I think it was at that time, and saying that's what they need to get the sand out of the river, which had covered all the gravel, insects had gone down, the fishing had gone straight to hell. Uh, and we're trying to tell that story to the DNR today. Hey guys, we got to get the sand out of the river. Uh, Jerry's been promoting that for the last 15 years. Oh, I know that's no, a huge point of passion that's with been... Jerry. I mean, oh, the, yeah. our first winter up here, we got to Actually, Jerry was our mentor on the Red Survey. Leslie and I yep. were able to go uh, down bridge down to uh, to Terry's joint. Uh -huh. <laughs> the, uh -huh. the um, but fascinating, fascinating, and, and yeah. it's just really neat. Every layer of the onion that you peel back, there's always some connection that brings it right back here. Sure, it's just incredible. Sure, yeah. Just incredible. It, the Red Survey, that's, a, that's probably a good spot to jump in and, and start having Jerry tell us about that. Uh, Jerry, I, I understand the Red Survey you started back almost informally was back in 1968. So take us through that process and well, what was that? It, for me, it was just a learning experience, just observation. And Because uh, you love the river. Yeah, and the thing was that there were so many reds and so many fish. Uh, the best day that I had was prior to the uh, the massive fish kill, and it was in night. It was in October, the end of October, last day of the spawning. Last, excuse me, the la the, the trout fishing ended the end of October. Last day of fly water, and uh, it was the last day of the fly water, and it was pouring down rain. It was just you couldn't hardly see, and I went out. Of course, I didn't. I was on vacation to do the surveys, and I got in down at uh, the Copper Fisherman, and I started walking upstream. And I, you could, because of the rain was so hard, and all of the trout were peaking on the spawning at, at that exact time, middle of the day. And as you're walking along, you could walk right, you could put your feet right behind 20 plus inch brown trout, they couldn't see it. And they, they were so preoccupied to spawning, they weren't paying attention either. Mm -hmm. So um, it was quite a spectacle. And I said, well, I'm going to only count brown trout that are over 20 inches. And I got to 200 brown trout over 20 inches by the time I got up to Carl Huter's bridge. Okay. Wow. So between there and, and it was just awesome. Now that's just over 20. That's incredible. And the Copper Fisherman now is just a little bit across from where the museum is and upstream a little bit. Yeah. It wasn't there at that time. No. But by that, that first DNR access. <coughs> but that's a short, short reach of river. Yeah, that's... that's so you're looking at the concentration, see. Now, 
the following year, of course, was the massive fish kill. So that was 1975 when you did this survey? Yeah. Okay. In the following year, there was no reds at all above 612. And so we lost a tremendous amount of fish, both brook and brown. Did they ever declare root cause, Jerry? Pardon me? Did they ever declare root cause of the 76 event? Well, no, they hid it. In fact, uh, Tom Beard just made a recent, here a couple of years ago, tried to get the court records, and uh, they've scrubbed them. Hmm. You can't, and even in the newspaper articles that came out back then, you can't find, they have scrubbed all the information. We've, Glenn and I really researched hmm. and other people have, and <coughs> Tom, you, you had, there's two places where the court decision is, is in Grayling, and then there's one in Lansing. Right. Tom Beard, all he could get was the front page. And he's never been able to he's get anything track, past that. Yeah. But um, well, I didn't mean to derail, but well, no, that's, that's all right. right. That's that's an right. Well, the thing that's is, is, is this stuff pops up, you have to respond to it. Otherwise, you miss yeah. it. The records were blocked. Yeah, that's incredible. That. Yeah. But the red surveys start after '76, uh, the fish kill. You continued the red surveys, and then sometime in around 2000, uh, you started doing it formally. Yeah. Actually, GPS mapping them. Tell us about that. Well, it was, it was before that because it was before 2000 because in 95 I started with working with Steve Sendek, the biologist. See, I retired in 95, so I had more time up here. Oh, and, uh, that's right. 95 you did the first GPS survey? No. Okay. Uh, but um, I started beaver trapping. Because it was obvious the beavers had put so much. The beavers moved into the watershed in, in 1980. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, nobody was really addressing that. And they had really taken over. And uh, I got Sendek out to trap them, but he didn't have the time and he wouldn't trap them all. And none of the trappers would trap all beavers. And my whole thing was that you can't manage that population without. Uh, having the target is getting rid of all of them because you're always going to fall short of your objective. So you have to make the objective eradication of all of them. And uh, that, so I had quite a fight with a lot of people on that. Uh, the one year in 98, I trapped 201 beavers, which is quite a feat. That's just on the North Branch here. That's, wow. Yeah. Is that, what were your parameters? Is it from your place down or? No, anywhere. Just wherever? Yeah, it don't matter, wherever they're at. Yeah. Okay, okay. And our whole watershed is 395 square miles. So after getting them in right out of the north branch, you have to move out. So you've got 395 square miles. You've got 28 lakes that supply eight right. tributaries that feed the north branch. <laughs> So it's, it's a challenge. So I addressed all of that. And you can't, the trappers today are hobby trappers and they don't go about it seriousness or in the proper ways to really be real successful. So in order to accomplish that goal, I had to educate myself and get really good at it. So well, you, you also said that the the hobby trapper wasn't interested in eliminating the beaver from the river exactly. because he wanted to trap the next year. But what you wanted to do was to get them out of the river. There's nothing wrong with beaver in a warm water system. They're, right. they're, they're great. But in a cold water trout stream, they're the enemy Yeah, uh, yeah. for a number of reasons. It's but the only animal that can completely change the environment. But that's, and that's the whole key, changing the environment because they change the aquatic insect life and everything else. Water temperature. Water flow. Yeah, water oxygen. <laughs> You know, yeah, that riverbed structure, everything else. And the burrowing is what brought the sand into the river that covered up. Yeah, the that's burrowing. the other thing. Is the um, people think of beavers as cutting trees, but that's really a small part of the damage. It's the amount of excavation that they can do. And you, on average, you look, you can uh, a beaver can excavate one yard of soil in, in at least an hour, maybe even faster. Mm -hmm. And they do this constantly. And uh, uh, they use that sand uh, to chink all the dams and then it builds it up. In front of each dam it's like a huge uh, ramp. 
so that uh, it holds back the water. And they depend upon that big uh, ramp of sand so that it doesn't trickle through the through the day. So it's a, it, and then on the banks uh, at the sheep ranch, and this is key. Now this is the extreme most amount of sand I ever measured, but from the dam at the sheep ranch, it was 650 yards of sand. When we took the dam out and the water dropped, then you they undermined the bank. And it was, you know, in most places it was three to four feet high and three feet back. And they, they undermine all that sand and bring it out, but they eat the root system under there. That's what they eat. So they're doing two things at once. They remove the sand to use at the dam. And as they go through there, they're eating the roots that they <coughs> dig out. Well, it's convenient at hand snap. Yeah, 650 <laughs> yards of sand. Now, that was about eight beavers, and, um, uh... Is that the one we took out with, uh, did we take that dam out? Yeah, but, uh, I, I took it out, and you probably helped, but, uh, then that's the one that, uh... uh one up at dam two? No, this is, this is at the sheep ranch, the sheep? uh... Uh, Cindy's mom and them got involved in it too later on, but uh, so it was it had to be removed a couple of times mm -hmm. after I had the got that time. dam out because okay. the beaver in a couple of years the beavers will move every time that you every two years the beaver, the two year olds are kicked out and they have to go and start up shop somewhere else. And they can't go into a terry that territory that's already occupied, so they got to find a new territory. Mm -hmm. So every time you clean them out of one, it's vacant. And every spring you got two-year-old beavers that are looking to for a home. So that's why it's such a difficult job is is to, for maintenance in a watershed, and uh, you don't get much of a break, especially when it's so huge of a, of a task. Sure. Uh, now, the, the, the red surveys, off of Beaver for a second, the red surveys continued and became quite scientific, as I understand. Well, okay, now let's From get, observation let to me science. get back on track to the red surveys. The, Hi. I, the, uh, I started, it, after 95 when I retired, I needed to get the DNR involved in the sand problem. And uh, I was addressing the, the, the most urgent thing right then, Sendek and I were addressing that. But uh, I, in, in, in the process, I tried to encourage Hunt Creek Research Station to get involved in red surveys because I want, there's an old Chinese proverb that says, tell me and I'll forget, show me I may remember, but involve me, then I'll understand. So my point was to get these problems solved in the North Branch, I've got to get the DNR involved enough so they start understanding the problem. So the red survey, when you have the loss of the reds and it's continuing, it's in continual decline, that was, I tried to get them involved into doing a red survey so that they could document the own decline other than just relying upon the population census. Well, they just looked at me. And they looked like, they looked at me like I was a dumbass and didn't know what I was talking about and where you're coming from. They didn't say a word, they just looked at me, stared at me. Well, <laughs> I didn't understand it. But Andy Newfer got... Tom and another guy, and they started trying to learn a red survey on the Main Street, but they didn't know how to go about it. So they floated some reaches of the rivers, but they didn't know how to identify a red, and they and they couldn't tell but differentiate between brook and brown trout. <laughs> and uh, so brown trout reds, right? Yeah. Nor what other animals the the, the similar uh, evidence that other animals leave. They didn't know that either. So they gave up. And Jerry, if I may real quick, because I, I remember you drilling this and in that the was around, 
But for our listeners that may not understand what we're describing, the, the fish red could also look like waterfowl have yeah. gone after decaying vegetation in the right. riverbed or yeah. uh, small mammals sometimes. Muskrat. Yeah. So yeah. It, just to put it, I'd rather you tell no, me I, because no, you're right. you do There's it other animals that <laughs> it makes it confusing at first glance, but after you really study the differences, then then you can see it. But when you first start, it's it's very confusing. It, it, it's it what you were saying though. It wasn't as if they couldn't look down in the water and observe something. They just weren't sure they, what they yeah, were observing. Yeah, they didn't know. They had there was no information and there's nobody to consult. They sure as hell didn't want to consult me. <laughs> and uh, this, so this was around two, year 2000. They, they had very poor success at it, so they abandoned it. And they never said a word. Then in night, I kept pushing on them to do a red survey. So finally, in 2006, in the spring, Andy Newfer said, well, why don't you do it? Well, duh. Didn't think about that. I'm doing it anyway. It didn't didn't enter my mind, and I didn't know that um, that they were would promote that, but they did. And uh, so uh, uh, I took them out. I took Newfer and Sendek, and we went from the 612 Bridge and Levels down to Newman's. They wanted to go out on a survey with me before they authorized it and endorsed it. So I took them out and uh, I thought, I sat, I stood back waiting for them to leave thinking that they had had experience, they knew what they were doing. They didn't, they hadn't had experience. And it took a little bit to see that. And so then I jumped in and took the lead. And uh, then I would kind of do things to find out what they didn't know or did know. But anyways, we we got going on it. And uh, by the time we got down to Newman's, they had a pretty good idea of it. And um, Gary was there. And we sat down on the picnic table with Gary and they we had took a break. I don't know if we had lunch or not, but... Uh, I remember Andy looking at Sendek and saying, well, what do you think? Sendek says, yeah. And that was the end of that. So uh, that was that was every, the whole, oh, then they, well, I had done the charts. I did the charts and the criteria. But then Andy Newfer said to me, well, he says, I see these out in the river. And what he was referring to was the muskrats, how they, they turn up. And he says, well, I don't understand what that is. He says, uh, I'd like to know. Well, okay, I went out and I took pictures of it. And then I described it and then I sent it back to him. And so it's just things like that. Um, but I hadn't got that far. Well, we were just, that was the first year that we were going to organize the Red Survey. So I and hadn't had any experience with training people or working. 2006. Yep. And were you GPSing the locations at that point? Or we were. You, you were, okay. And, and, and size? Yeah, now you ought to see, if you go back to those records and see the size of those reds and the amount. They were significant. It's huge, yeah. And by the next year, that was that all disappeared. So you, you know, I've got some of that evidence. It was just awesome. And, well, you know, and that's that's uh, consistent with what happens with the shocking surveys today. You know, 15 years ago, 12 years ago, it used to take us two days to do a shocking survey because there were so many fish. Now, that's for for the first day. Then they go back and do it again. Yeah. It used to take four days, because two days at first and then two days again. You might as well say there's not enough to justify even doing it. That's where they're at right now. You, you, do, you do the whole survey in one day, or part of a day, and then the next day you do the repeat. Yeah. But, uh, I don't know. And they, they don't, it down. They, it do, they used to have a lot of people to do that. Now, there's so few fish, they don't utilize many man hours to do it. Doesn't take as long. No. Not at all. So, um... Uh, 
So then uh, they kind of didn't want that data really pub publicized in 206, that first one. There were a lot of fish and a lot of reds, and they were huge reds. And uh, uh, the one thing... And the these are brown reds, right? Not communal brook These reds. are brown. Okay. And uh, you don't find uh, colony reds in brown trout. At least wise, we haven't on the north branch. Brook trout, yes, but mm -hmm. not... Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it was... Uh, and, and so every year, the people that are, you know, you look at the figures and you see the, the decline. And I mean, it's just steady. It, there's nothing that's ever came back or reversed. Now, the other problem that's happened, as this, you know, the Hunt Creek used to say that the sand moves downstream uh, one mile in 10 years. but And I don't know how accurate that is, but it takes a long time for these large plumes of sand to move downstream. And uh, as they move downstream, it stops reproduction and uh, food production, which accounts for your loss of insects. That's one and, thing. And Jerry, that's because it covers the gravel yep. where the spawning takes place and yep. where the insect, uh, uh, spawn, yeah. uh, insect production is. Right. And uh, now that's a moving target all the time, see? So prior, prior to this change in the habitat, the spawning reds were real consistent. You could, you could predict where they would be, but now as the sand comes down, now you're seeing these movements where these fish are moving all over and sometimes maybe a mile or two miles apart to find new spawning ground. So there's a lot of changes going on. So we're documenting the changes. I don't know that we're really studying the changes. Everything's in flux all the time. But you can certainly see a trend uh, away from the traditional spots and more towards the middle. With regard to the red survey, and refresh my memory, how far south do we go? Uh, I've always done from uh, the Ford all the way down to Kellogg Bridge. Oh, all, all the way to Kellogg. Yeah. Okay. But not, I got to back that up because we, um, there's some large reaches of river that's all sand that we skip over. We don't go through there. We did them in 207. Everything in the river in 207 was done. But, um, and that's all, we've got maps that mark that. You've got miles of, it's all sand. And that was a base, kind of a base year, 2007, and we still can use that data today, can't we? Oh, we do, yeah. I think you gave it to Mark Luttonton, who did a oh, yeah. substrate survey this past year. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so, so, but back then, things were much more stable than they are today. Today, it's really erratic. Well, over the, in as much as we do go all the way to Kellogg, have you observed the density increase Decrease. more more as we go south? No, it, it, it changes. The, the more you go south, the less it changes. But over a long period of time, it's it's affected down there, down at Kellogg. Okay. But it took a lot longer. You didn't, the, the, the change uh, just wasn't that noticeable. Well, and again, for our listeners, it's much different water um, depth and a little bit to the width, but mainly depth and... Well, the width pretty much is 100 feet Yeah. all the way in some it's, places, it's 150, 150 way, yeah. feet or more. But but the the understructure, the, the, the bed seems to be deeper and... Um, You've got big creek coming in too. Well, well indeed. No, you but you, you raised another point. The, uh, the sand settles in the deeper portions where the current isn't able to move it. Keep it moving, right. And uh, the spawning, historically, everywhere you go, takes place in real shallow water. Which is more of what we have up in this stretch of right. the north. Right. Yeah, and, and there's more insects. And, uh, now, the, here, the, the biggest problem for people to understand this is that these trout have different methods for hiding in shallow water as opposed to deeper water. In deeper water, 
they're not as scared and you'll see more fish in deeper water because they let their guard down. They know that the water depth itself offers protection so they make themselves available more in deeper water and they have uh, but you actually have more fish in the shallow water but they've got unique ways to hide that most fishermen haven't caught on to well, and, and gonna, I don't care we're not going to describe that today on yeah it, there, there's a limit uh, to the info we're going to no, share. no I don't want to share that either. <laughs> no I'm giving your secrets away Jerry <laughs> oh, um, I, a question uh, I'd like to hear a little bit about the, the river mapping that you've done relative to restoration work. Uh, you've done mapping for uh, red surveys uh, and uh, at some point somebody decided we need to map the river to determine what should be done for restoration work. Structures, uh, dams, uh, doing dams, whatever. Yeah. Can well, share that with us a little bit. The, the you know the where the where the eggs where spawning takes place, the young of the the young ones are going to be born. So you're all of your juvenile. You've got to have a condition where there's good food availability to feed those to grow them. And uh, so that's the locations where the spawning takes place is where you're going to have your juvenile grow. And uh, that's a good place where the uh, where the uh, food production will be the best, as opposed to the sandy areas. And uh, so, you, you by doing the spawning reds, you're identifying those locations in the river. Now, you do the GPS that gives you an exact location, both for providing adjacent cover, but it helps you. You can go through and you can find those areas and if you're going to put other types of cover in to help uh, protect the juvenile fish or they need different, uh, maybe maybe brush, things like that, that you're going to help to uh, provide cover for the, for the small uh, minnows, the uh, juvenile fish, you can identify these areas. There's no point in going to an area that has no fish and trying to provide cover for something that ain't there. So <laughs> that's what that's what it does. And uh so it, it kind of guides the, the, the restoration work. Oh absolutely. Where you should put cover and where you shouldn't put cover. As opposed to just going out as a fisherman and just um like throwing darts at a at a dartboard. Boy, you may be successful boy, on yeah. some but not others. Well, and, and kind of to the story of youth, the, the water's going to help you understand that. Just as you released your raft and they came to settle in certain yeah. areas and were adopted because they were a natural fit to get hung up there or whatever. Well, the, the one thing that cover is, first of all, the, the first governing factor for, your, uh, for the red location is, is good gravel clear gravel. Mm -hmm. The second would be oxygenated water and what they look for is either water seeping up out of the bottom, spring water, or it being uh, put in from the bank. But when they build a, a red, the ideal red would be they build a ramp so that the, as the water comes into the ramp part of the red then it push it hydraulically. It forces it between the stones, and the and the eggs are buried six up to six inches deep in the gravel. So you've got to get oxygenated water to that egg, and supply that for two months. That's what's critical. And you can't have sand coming in as a blanket and covering that over because that shuts the oxygen off to the eggs, so they die. So the fish have to find a, a place that's going to um, uh, keep that red clean. Now, the brook trout stay on a red. They're more diligent at keeping their reds cleaner than the brown trout. And uh, that allows them, they're more versatile in the type of substrate that they can lay eggs. They can go from still water all the way to the same place that the browns like. Uh, they're, they're just better at, they're going to survive better. 
Huh. Uh, I didn't know that. Well, you never stick around long enough. <laughs> well, they just have a different level of persistence. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, uh, yeah, that makes, they have a better chance of survival than the brown trout. But the other problem with the uh, brook trout and the browns, the browns spawn after the brook, or the brooks spawn after the browns. And what the brooks used to do was come in and dig up the gravel where the browns laid their eggs and then put theirs in there. So they were pretty good. Did, did that do any harm to the brown trout eggs? It never little, seemed little to. parasitic that way? It seemed to. Well, yeah, I mean, it's going gonna, it's gonna to kill some, yeah. And uh, you gotta, you got to know one thing, that if you look back at the records, the records, the population going back into the 70s, for the North Branch, these populations were off the charts as opposed to other rivers, even on the Asabo. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, uh, and we were at, we never reached a peak because we had a tremendous amount of insects that could supply a tremendous amount of fish. And we don't have that no more, but uh, we did at one time. So uh, we never really, Seen prior to 1975, the river was still peaking. And had we not had that Seagull Lake event, you know, it more than likely would have went higher. Hmm. Incredible. And what, what was the peak on uh, brook trout in the North Branch? There were some big numbers back in, uh, <coughs> what was it, 69 or? or yeah, well, I can 70? tell you, yeah, I can tell you that. Um, <coughs> In uh, 19, um, um, 1957 or no, it'd be 1960, 1960, I guess. You had uh, just for the we have a 1,200 foot research station at uh, at Twin Bridges. <coughs> And we had uh, somewhere around 60, 62. We had it was either five or seven thousand brook trout and two thousand browns. So it was about seven thousand trout in twelve hundred feet. <coughs> uh, and that wasn't the peak, but that's just a number that stood. That's when we had the most brook trout. No, but as somebody that fishes that area and kayaks that area, yeah. To visualize, and it's beautiful at this very moment. It's always beautiful, but the density of the of that That's is fish. inconceivable. Yeah. By today's well, and, and today's the brook trout and brown trout were both peaking. There wasn't just one peak and then right. the other. They right. were both right. going up. So what it sort of tells you was that prior to Otsego Lake. We never reached our peak, and it was still climbing, and uh, that was, <laughs> it was awesome. Yeah. Wow. Well, and that's, that, that's why we pushed to try to get it back. <clears throat> yeah, well, we... <clears throat> that tells you what the river can do. That's the potential. Oh, yeah. 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 That's, that's the potential of the North Branch. So, and, uh, today we, and I always suspected it was 2010 when I started pushing... Mason Griffith to study chemicals, and I'd always felt that we had a chemical problem. So we have we have more than one problem, and each each one takes a certain percentage of the of the decline. But um, in 2010, I was mapping up there at the Dam Two and the Ford, and there was a tremendous amount of uh, vegetation up there that normally wasn't up there which indicated that we had nutrients coming through. Phosphorus and nitrogen? And it probably came from the golf courses. So um, the thing was that if nutrients are coming through, also would be pesticides. And uh, so I wanted to get some study done to either document it one way or the other. And uh, so I kept pushing, but then I quit talking about it, and uh, so then in uh, 
somewhere SCB about 2014-15 or something, uh, Karen Harrison. I think it got, was 16. She got interested. She got with Angela from uh, uh, USGS. USGS. And uh, so they, they were just coming out with a new type of uh, testing canister. And uh, so it took quite a bit of lead time to get that going with them. And uh, we had the, uh, they were all set to go and put those in the river in 2017 when we had that big crash. But we held it out to get other help on funding from the other partners. So that was delayed in two, till 2018. And then it was supposed to have been in, put in on May 1st. <coughs> and I don't, I never could figure out the reason because they weren't, weren't being forthright to me. They were kind of hiding something. And uh, the Otsego Lake starts draining in September 1st. They quit May 1st. And in order to capture what chemicals are coming through there, you've got to be more prompt to do your testing. And uh, your golf courses start applying fertilizers in April. And uh, <clears throat> so I wanted to put those canisters in May 1st. And uh, they didn't get put in until June 1st. And there was one reason was they said all oh, the ice. Well, we don't have ice. <coughs> Especially that time of the year. And there was other reasons. All the water's too deep or something. Well, it was all bullshit. So, so we really missed the optimum time right, to check to see if there's Yeah, all that the chemicals that came through, you had a whole month, month or better lead for them to pass through without capturing the concentration strength. As it was, we ended up with 28 different chemicals, and even at those quantities, they can, if, if they're present in the water, they can come right through the gravel and kill the eggs, as, as they, you know, while they're underneath the gravel. Right. And it doesn't, it doesn't take that much. Also, you're killing the insects, so it's a very small amount of chemicals to, to kill that stuff. So, um... You combine a chemical problem with the sand problem. Those are your two biggest issues that's for the decline. And there may be more. And as this thing goes on, it's just like uh, I, I made a note in the uh, Mason Griffith letter that just came out that Glenn and I have uh, found some research where if malnutrition sets in for a period of time, then that can delay your sexual maturity. Mm -hmm. So where that comes in is brook trout are so vulnerable to predation, they just don't live that long. So if you're delaying, the, uh, normally they're going to reproduce at two years, but if you delay the females one more year and they're exposed to predation, then the odds go way, way down that they'll even reproduce, see? <clears throat> and that's why they're doing the colony ridge. Your book trout population is down so far that you get one female, and you have, usually there's four or five males that it takes to fertilize those eggs. But now you don't know what kind of effects the chemicals and stuff are having. How potent are the males or the females? So you get a colony red, and they're all working together. And that, and right now, that's the best thing you got going is to. Utilize those genes and like that. See, so. Well, and again, for our <coughs> listeners' benefit, I don't want people to come away from this with this vision that uh, we live on the banks of some toxic stream, um, you know, resembling a, a river in Cleveland, uh, you know, at the height of the badness there. It's just these slight differences have huge impacts. Yeah. And it's, it, so it doesn't, it's not like there's, drums of chemicals sitting around in the river it, right. and we're dodging those to go catch no. fish. It's it, it's just these little slight nuances that make such a significant difference. And one of the other things is uh, our property owners on the river, the North Branch Association 
years ago used to uh, constantly uh, caution residents about fertilizers. And they sure. used to stress fertilizers, but actually they would mention uh, pesticides. But pesticides are probably worse than fertilizers in my mind. A lot of them spray di diagnosine or something. They spray around the cabins for ants. And um, <clears throat> uh, people tend to think, oh, that little bit ain't going to hurt or uh, <clears throat> it'll get diluted. And when it rains and stuff, that stuff does all wash into the river. So I'm not a chemist, but there's evidence to support that that's not quite the best practice or is it really that sound of a science that, that it's not going to hurt. So I think, but the, you see, the thing is, it's hard to to sort of uh, beat up on the property owner without addressing the larger issues like golf courses and those places. They all should be addressed, but uh, you can't just go around and, and put the responsibility on what few property owners are there and totally neglect the larger part of the problem. Well, and again, we, we can speculate. I don't know that we're qualified to declare. That's right. Terry, yeah. I remember your comments about uh, spraying for chippy moths, and it almost wiped yep. out a particular Now that killed, I'm that? glad you brought that up, Glenn. That's a good example. They were, they got people together to spray for gypsy moths. Got everybody concerned about that, and uh, they uh, come down the river. They take a crop duster and they fly right between the trees, right low to the river. <laughs> And in 1983, my favorite hatch on the river was Iron Fratador. And that was happening when they sprayed for the gypsy moth. And they wiped that whole hatch out. It's never returned. Not one fly mm. came after that. So That's a real clear example of uh, chemi chemicals oh, for sure. damaging the insect population. Yeah. And we're, we're seeing a significant reduction in, chem in uh, insects on the North Branch. And... and we're not sure. We're not positive it's tied to chemicals. We know sand's an issue, but all of that needs more research. And well, exactly. Has been the driver but th on that insect never came back. A lot of people say, oh, they'll come back. No, that's not no. true. No, I've never seen one. No. We'll have to ask Ann Miller if she's ever seen one. Well, she would have, but the Iron <laughs> I mean, Fratador was yeah. highly distinguishable <laughs> from a long distance. Yeah. And uh, that was... The thing about the iron fratador, it had, it did not have transparent wings. Came off usually about the same time as the Hendrickson, but it had a thick, opaque wing. Really? Yeah, oh. it was real thick. And when it hatched to the surface, it couldn't fly off. What it did was was start dancing around on the surface. To get airborne? To yeah, it took a long time. Try to get it. It to had dry. to dry those wings. I mean, a long time. You, you're talking minutes and uh it would drive the in the spring of the year the fish's coordination for sure surface. Just launch it out yeah and they're they're <laughs> off see so they uh it was and they were it was fun to f dry fly fish with that because that fly was skipping and moving on the water and uh, fish crazy probably yeah yeah and you had uh actually you had a lot of big trout that would come out for those sure yeah, and they were and they were pretty prolific too. See, and then when they sprayed, that killed all the adults, and that was the end of it. I never seen a fly after that. That was my favorite hatch. Oh man, that's well, Jerry. It's that was in '83, so I mean they've never come back. Yeah. It's been a great discussion with him today, John. I think uh, I don't know anybody that does what he does. Thank God we got. I uh, wish we had a few more Jerry lights well, around. But uh, any river system would be good with another Jerry or two on it. Yes, and sir. Jerry, thanks for all you do. You're welcome. We're grateful and, to uh, have you amongst us. It's uh, the one thing you know. I learned at General Motors uh, to get things done. It takes a hell of a lot of talking. Over and over, repeating the same, <laughs> same thing. Repetitive. Uh, yeah. And you've been good at that. You've been good at uh, keeping the drum beating and uh, making people aware. Well, I got kind of trained at GM for it, so it, and I kind of got trained for that coming into it. The problem was when I retired, 
I was wore out and I needed a rest and I didn't, I knew what a tough job this would be and I didn't relish the idea of getting into it. Well, you, know, you, can't, you, you can't go just a little bit because you have to be all in or not at all. <laughs> well, and, uh, I'll tell you folks, Jerry Lake's all in. He's all in. <laughs> yeah, you have to be. He is you all know, in. You have to stay engaged. And, I think, and we're all better from knowing it, so thank well, you, Jerry. The problem is, you know, it's only a part that I play because what this, it, to, to, to really solve this, all of this, it takes people that can work with the politicians at different levels. It takes lawyers. It takes it takes a whole group of people Science. with different skills that's going to solve this problem. And that's why your organizations, in order to track those kind of a people, we the, the better we do at collecting the evidence and communication of these problems, we need to attract people that are qualified to take the lead to address these different aspects of this problem solving. Well said. Yep. Well, Jerry's a heck of a person and uh, really happy we got to sit down with him and hear uh, not only about what fishing was like, but things that we could be doing to keep it going into the future. So hope you enjoyed it. Thank you very much for listening as always. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with a new episode. Until then, mind your back cast. Just like you.